0: Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are starting with chapter 27 of 3rd Nephi and working our way through 4th Nephi. And in chapter 27, disciples have been out and about preaching and baptizing, and they come together united in prayer and fasting to ask the Lord what to name the church. And the Lord's answer is as obvious as it is relevant today. In verse 4, it says, And the Lord said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Why is it that the people should murmur and dispute because of this thing? So he gives them a little bit of a rebuke gently for not coming up with this on their own. Verse 5 continues, Have they not read the scriptures which say ye must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name? For by this name shall ye be called at the last day. And maybe that seems obvious to us, but I mean, isn't that what we do in baptism? We take upon ourselves the name of Christ and we join his church. Verse 7 says, therefore, whatsoever ye shall do, ye shall do it in my name. Therefore, ye shall call the church in my name, and ye shall call upon the Father in my name, that he will bless the church for my sake. And then here comes the further correction in verse 8, and he says, and how be it my church, save it be called in my name? For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be called in the name of a man, then it be the church of a man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church, if it so be that they are built upon my gospel. In other words, brothers and sisters, we are not the Mormon church. We are the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And President Nelson made this very point very poignantly two years ago when he said, the name of the church is not negotiable. When the Savior clearly states what the name of his church should be, he is serious. And if we allow nicknames to be used or or even sponsor those nicknames ourselves, he is offended. Personally speaking, I've always been a little uncomfortable with using the term Mormon. So I was glad for the call for everyone to use the correct name. And it is a mouthful and I get that. Quite honestly, when people ask me what church I belong to, I always say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I usually get a quizzical look and have to explain Exactly what President Nelson said two years ago, that the actual name of, the, of our church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that in the past we got the nickname Mormon because we have the complementary book of scriptures called the Book of Mormon. However, that name was actually a pejorative, which means it wasn't a nickname we asked for or particularly liked. However, after a while, for the sake of ease and understanding, we accepted that name, and now our prophet has made it clear that we need to stop using the term and explain to others that we belong to the Church of Jesus Christ. Then I explained that Latter-day Saints simply means that we are members of His Church in the days preparing for a second coming. And they get it, even if they often will use the term Mormon after that. And after I use the full name, I usually will shorten it to the Church And I I found that to be very effective and still positive. And I think that people respond to that and understand then at that point that we are Christians, that we believe in Jesus Christ, that we don't believe in some strange book called the Book of Mormon, that we don't worship someone named Mormon, that we don't worship uh, Joseph Smith, etc. And this all goes back to what he said back in verses 5 and 6. And I want to emphasize that. We take upon ourselves the name of Christ when we are baptized. And this is what Elder Hales said. He said, when we are baptized, we take upon ourselves the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Taking upon us his name is one of the most significant experiences we have in life. Yet sometimes we pass through that experience without having a full understanding. And I think that's true for many of us, that we were baptized when we were young, about eight. We got it. We understood it to some level. But maybe we forget or we don't really understand the sacrament. As I'm recording this podcast, I'm thinking about my daughter, Nora, who I'm going to get a chance to baptize later this afternoon. She is eight years old, and we've really tried to help her understand the significance of what she's doing today and to really understand that she is becoming a Christian, that she's taking upon herself the name of Christ, and hopefully we have succeeded in that. Verses 9 through 21 talks about the gospel. And Neil A. Maxwell said, There is in the Book of Mormon a statement in which the Lord says, Behold, this is the gospel which I have given unto you. And then he describes his gospel. It is a simple story of a world to which a Savior has been sent, whom men may accept or reject, who is, nevertheless, the Messiah. That simple story is the very thing, of course, the world cannot accept, and is so simple that some may even be offended inwardly at times by the so-called simplicity of the gospel. There are those who may share some of our beliefs and values, but for whom the restoration of the gospel is a stumbling block they cannot get over the top of. But to most of mankind, what we proclaim is foolishness. The Savior himself defined his gospel as faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. He also stated that the gospel was his coming into the world to do the Father's will and to be lifted up upon the cross. In verse 26, we talks about how we are judged based upon the scriptures. And Joseph F. Smith said, The Lord will make a record also, and out of that shall the whole world be judged. And you men bearing the holy priesthood, you apostles, presidents, bishops, and high priests in Zion, will be called upon to be the judges of the people. Therefore, it is expected that you shall set the standard for them to attain to, and see that they shall live according to the spirit of the gospel, do their duty, keep their commandments of the Lord. You shall make a record of their acts. You shall record when they are baptized, when they are confirmed, and when they receive the Holy Ghost by laying on of hands. You shall record when they come to Zion, their membership in the church. You shall record whether they attend to their duties as priests, teachers, or deacons, As elders, 70s, or high priests, you shall write their works as the Lord says here. You shall record their tithings. But ye shall judge the people, first requiring them to do their duty in order to do that. Those who stand at the head must set the example. In fact, in verse 27 it says, And know ye that ye shall be judges of this people according to the judgments which I shall give unto you, which shall be just. Therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. This is from John Madsen. He said, said the risen Lord, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. The meaning of the word ought, as used in this question, what manner of men ought ye to be, is crucial to understanding his answer, even as I am. The word ought means to be necessary or to be held or bound in duty or moral obligation suggesting, and the Holy Scripture, ancient and modern, confirm that it is necessary that we are bound as by covenant to be as he declared, even as I am. Now, this command was given specifically to these 12 disciples, but it is extrapolated to us too. As we take upon ourselves the name of Christ, we are under that same requirement to be as he is. In the rest of the chapter, we talk about a couple of prophecies. In verse 31, it talks about the prophecy that none will be lost from the current living generation at this time in the Book of Mormon. But after the fourth generation, all bets are off and this thing is going to fall apart and it's going to fall apart quickly. And we'll cover that in 4th Nephi. Chapter 28, in verse 1, Christ continues talking to his disciples and he offers them what they desire most. In verses two through three, it talks about how all but three asked to speedily go to Christ's kingdom after they've lived unto the age of man, which is apparently 72, and it is granted. The other three we find out in verse six, and he said unto them, behold, I know your thoughts, and ye have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry before that I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. So what did they desire? They desired to remain upon the earth working for the salvation of man until Christ returns at his second coming. In verses 7 through 10, he says, Therefore, more blessed are ye, for ye shall never taste of death, but ye shall live to behold all the doings of the Father under the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I shall come in my glory with the powers of heaven. And ye shall never endure the pains of death, but when I shall come in my glory, ye shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality. And then ye shall be blessed in the kingdom of my Father. And again, ye shall not have pains while ye shall dwell in the flesh, neither sorrow, save it be for the sins of the world. And all this will I do because of the things which ye have desired of me. For ye have desired that ye might bring the souls of men unto me, while the world shall stand. And for this cause ye shall have fullness of joy. And ye shall sit down in the kingdom of my Father. Yea, your joy shall be full, even as the Father hath given me fullness of joy. And ye shall be even as I am, and I am even as the Father, and the Father and I are one. What a marvelous and amazing blessing that these three Nephites received. The other disciples were touched, every one of them, by the finger of the Lord. And then it says that Christ departed, but it says at this time in verse 13, And behold, the heavens were opened, and they were caught up into heaven, and saw and heard unspeakable things. And Mormon makes the comment that it seems like they were transfigured and they were changed from this body of flesh into an immortal state that they could behold the things of God. Now at this point it gets a little bit confusing because you have three of the Nephites who are going to live on the earth forever and they're not necessarily immortal because we know they're going to die. It says they're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. When that happens, no man can, can avoid death according to the scriptures. However, they will live amongst us. In fact, Mormon talks about how they're cast into prison, how they're thrown into furnaces and dens of wild beasts, and they receive no harm, and they go about preaching the word of God unto the people of Christ. And he actually says that they've spoken to him specifically, and he's going to write down their names, but he says, no, I was told not to. And this is what it says in verse 27, and behold, they will be among the Gentiles and the Gentiles shall know them not. And verse 28 says, they will be also among the Jews, and the Jews shall know them not. And here is their mission in verse 29, and it shall come to pass when the Lord seeth fit in his wisdom that they shall minister unto the scattered tribes of Israel, and unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and shall bring out of them unto Jesus many souls that their desire may be fulfilled, and also because of the convincing power of God which is in them. Verse 30 says, and they are as the angels of God, and if they shall pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus, they can show themselves unto whatsoever man it seemeth them good. So they, and presumably John as well, have been amongst us, and they have ministered unto us in various ways and various capacities throughout the world, and will eventually reveal themselves unto us when the time is right, when Christ returns upon the face of the earth. In verses 37 through 40, Mormon gets more insight unto how they become immortal. He says in verse 38, Therefore, that they might not taste of death, there was a change wrought upon their bodies, that they might not suffer pain nor sorrow, save it were for the sins of the world. And then it says in verse 40, And in this state they were to remain until the judgment day of Christ, And at that day, they were to receive a greater change and to be received into the kingdom of the Father to go no more out, but to dwell with God eternally in the heavens. This is what Joseph Smith had to say. He was talking about translation and transfiguration and resurrection. He said, translated beings, persons who are changed so that they do not experience pain or death until their resurrection to immortality. Many have supposed that the doctrine of translation was a doctrine whereby men were taken immediately into the presence of God and into an an eternal fullness, but this is a mistaken idea. Their place of habitation is that of the terrestrial order, and a place prepared for such characters he held in reserve to be ministering angels unto many planets and who as yet have not entered into so great a fullness as those who are resurrected from the dead. Transfiguration, the condition of persons who are temporarily changed in appearance and nature, that is, lifted to a higher spiritual level, so that they can endure the presence and glory of heavenly beings. So these three Nephites and John and many other prophets are translated beings so that they can still work in the flesh and serve in the terrestrial world. At this point in the Book of Mormon, Mormon is really putting in his commentary about what's going on and making the transition into his time that he will get to just after 4th Nephi. And when we read this chapter, we know that the Lord will restore lands to the children of Israel. Are we keeping a list of things the Lord has done and will do for covenant Israel, as President Nelson suggested? Elder Holland said, Mormon concluded his description of this majestic season, the visit of the Savior among the Nephites, by testifying that when a record of Jesus Christ's visit would come to the Gentiles in the form of the Book of Mormon, then all might know that the covenant and promises to Israel of the last days were already beginning to be fulfilled. God's covenant will be kept with all of his covenant people. No one will be able to turn the right hand of the Lord unto the left on this matter. And the call to the Gentiles for which Christ's visit to the Nephites published in the Book of Mormon is the ultimate Latter-day Declaration, is for them to claim the same covenants and promises. I want to point out that in this chapter, Mormon uses the word spurn and hiss, and that means to reject with disdain or to be offended. Are we doing, as President Nelson said, in letting God prevail, as the word Israel implies, or are we spurning and hissing? I'm not going to take the time to read all of chapter 30, but I will read verse two. Turn all ye Gentiles from your wicked ways and repent of your evil doings, of your lying and deceivings, and of your whoredoms and of your secret abominations and your idolatries and of your murders and your priestcrafts and your envyings and your strifes and from all your wickedness and abominations and come unto me and be baptized in my name that ye may receive a remission of your sins and be filled with the Holy Ghost that ye may be numbered with my people who are of the house of Israel. This is a charge to all of us and to all of the Gentiles, that we need to be out there and we need to gather Israel, turn away from all of our wickedness and be numbered with the house of Israel. And now we go into 4th Nephi. This is a summary of the people for about 300 years after Christ first ministered unto them. And The first half is a recipe for how to become a Zion people, And the second half is the example of what happens when pride, contention, and inequality take over. To emphasize how important this book is for us today, I recommend going back to last General Conference and reading and studying what the brethren and sisters had to say about 4th Nephi. specifically read Elder William Jackson's Culture of Christ, Elder Christofferson's sustainable societies, and Elder Cook's hearts knit in righteousness. In addition, President Irene's talk about Zion and the city of Enoch is very relevant to this discussion as well, as is the prophet's talk about Israel. Verses 2 through 3 say, And it came to pass in the thirty and sixth year that people were all converted unto the Lord upon the face of the land, both Nephites and Lamanites, and there were no contentions and disputations among them, And every man did deal justly one with another, and they had all things common among them. Therefore, there were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. President Marion G. Romney said being converted and having a testimony are not necessarily the same thing either. A testimony comes when the Holy Ghost gives the earnest seeker a witness of the truth. A moving testimony vitalizes faith, That is, it induces repentance and obedience to the commandments. Conversion, on the other hand, is the fruit of or the reward for repentance and obedience. So we're seeing here the reward or the fruit of their repentance is people who lived and were united one together. But how do we become one? President Kimball said, first, we must eliminate the individual tendency to selfishness that snares the soul, shrinks the heart and darkens the mind. Second, we must cooperate completely and work in harmony one with the other. Third, we must lay on the altar and sacrifice whatever is required by the Lord. We begin by offering a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And I want to talk for a minute about the phrase all things common, because many people will read this and they'll take it out of context and think that sounds like socialism or communism. But President Romney said this procedure, the United Order, preserved in every man the right of private ownership and management of his property. Each man owned his portion, which, at his option, he could alienate, keep, and operate, or otherwise treat as his own. He consecrated to the Lord the surplus he produced above the needs and wants of his own family. This surplus went into a storehouse from which stewardships were given to others, and from which the needs of the poor were supplied. When we reach the state of having the pure love of Christ, Our desire to serve one another will have grown to the point where we will be living fully the law of consecration. Living the law of consecration exalts the poor and humbles the rich. In the process, both are sanctified. The poor, released from the bondage and humiliating limitations of poverty, are enabled as free men to rise to their full potential, both temporally and spiritually. The rich, by consecration, And the imparting of their surplus for the benefit of the poor, not by constraint, but willingly as an act of free will, evidence that charity for their fellow men characterized by Mormon as the pure love of Christ, this will bring both the giver and receiver to the common ground on which the Spirit of God can meet them. This is not communism. President Benson has explained many times that the greatest difference is the stewardship, and the individual will, two things that are completely destroyed in communism. Verse 5 talks about the benefits of living in such a wonderful society that the sick are healed, the dead are raised, and there's miracles that are worked. In verses 7 through 9, they rebuild cities. In verses 10 through 11, it talks about how they are married and multiplied. Verses 12 through 13, they lived the higher law, and the key here is with no contention. This is what verse 15 says And it came to pass that there was no contention in the land because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. In addition, verses 16 and 17 say And there were no envies, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lines, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. There were no robbers, no murderers, neither were there Lamanites nor any manner of ites, but they were in one the children of Christ and heirs to the kingdom of God. And obviously, I emphasize no manner of ites. We are all children of our Father in heaven. President Fowl said, I have learned to admire, respect, and love the good people from every race, culture, and nation that I've been privileged to visit. In my experience, no race or class seems superior to any other in spirituality and faithfulness. Those who seem less caring spiritually are those individuals, regardless of race, culture, or nationality, spoken of by the Savior in the parable of the sower, who are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. As we move into more and more countries in the world, we find a rich cultural diversity in the Church. Yet everywhere, there can be a unity of faith. Each group brings special gifts and talents to the table of the Lord. We can all learn much of value from each other, but each of us should also voluntarily seek to enjoy all of the unifying and saving covenants, ordinances, and doctrines of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the great diversity of peoples, cultures, and circumstances, we remember that all are equal before the Lord. Elder Cook in last conference said with our all-exclusive doctrine, we can be an oasis of unity and celebrate diversity. Unity and diversity are not opposites. We can achieve greater unity as we foster an atmosphere of inclusion and respect for diversity. So many of the talks, including Elder Cook's, talked about becoming one, unifying, and not worrying about race, not worrying about the things that would divide us, but focus on the things that unite us in Christ. It's at this point in 4th Nephi where things start to change. Nephi keeps the records until he passes and he gives them to his son Amos, who then eventually will give him to Amoron, and Mormon will get him from Amoron. In verse 20, it talks about how there's a small rebellion and there begins to be Lamanites in the land again. So, in, in other words, there's a group of people who are distinguishing themselves from the group. Verses 23 through 26 talk about how riches lead to pride, to division and to contention. Verse 27 says, And it came to pass that when 210 years had passed away, there were many churches in the land, yea, there were many churches which professed to know the Christ, and yet they did deny the more parts of his gospel, insomuch that they did receive all manner of wickedness, and did administer that which was sacred unto him, to whom it had been forbidden because of unworthiness. And think about that when going over Elder Oaks' talk in conference. In verse 30, it talks about how the righteous are persecuted. Verse 36 talks about a separation. It says, And it came to pass, and in this year there arose a people who were called the Nephites, and they were true believers in Christ. And among them there were those who were called by the Lamanites, Jacobites, and Josephites, and Zoramites. Verse 38 explains how these Lamanites, Lemuelites, Ishmaelites, etc., dwindle in unbelief and how they willfully rebel against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also that they teach their children not to believe as their fathers did from the beginning. So we've gone into full and complete and total willful rebellion. And in verse 42, the Gadiat and robbers return. So the secret combinations come back to the earth and start wreaking havoc. At this point, Amos gives the records to his brother Amoron and then passes away. And Amaron will hide these records for quite some time until he can explain to Mormon where to find them. Finally, in verse 6, it says, And it came to pass that the robbers of Gadiant did spread over all the face of the land, and there were none that were righteous save it were the disciples of Jesus. And in reading that, you might get the impression that the twelve disciples of Jesus Christ and the three Nephites were the only righteous people left among the Nephites. However, Mormon left an important clarification at this point in Alma. And this is in Alma chapter 45, verses 13 through 14. And according to these verses, all of the peaceable followers of Jesus Christ were considered disciples of Jesus Christ. And this is us today. We are amongst secret combinations. We are amongst people who would divide. We have people who stir up contention for gain and for power. People who look to conflict and strife. To gain what they want. However, brothers and sisters, we can be one in the stakes of Zion. We can unite and form a Zion people within the church if we are willing to do so, if we are willing to set aside any differences that we have and focus on the fact that we are all children of a loving Heavenly Father and followers of the Savior Jesus Christ, and that when we follow his example, we are one And I bear my testimony that not only is this the path to salvation, but that is the only way to receive full joy upon the face of the earth. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, as always, you can reach me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com. Or send me a text at 916-412-2136. Thanks and have a blessed day.